Our dear Lord, we are constantly reminded as we walk day by day of our need to walk hand in hand with you. We know that even as you guided Israel personally, corporately and individually, so you guide us as those who are part of the Bride of Christ. Lord, I'm so grateful that we do not have to look around at the world and live in fear, as so many do, at a deteriorating situation, but we can look to you knowing that you are the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who is preparing many mansions for us who are your followers, your children. And so, Lord, as we study your word this morning, we invite your spirit to be our guide to strengthen us, to teach us, to be powerfully present here with us. And we ask, Lord, that throughout the service that is uh, occurring concurrently and the other Sunday school classes that you will minister, that you will touch each individual according to the needs represented. And above all, Lord, our desire is that you will glorify and magnify yourself, that we might look to you and be drawn into that relationship where we too will reflect the glory of Christ to those that are around us. We trust for your anointing and your empowering now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, seventh chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, I'd like to read the first 11 verses. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters to your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, and smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful one who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation to those who love him and keep his commandments. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you this day to do them. Last Sunday, we were studying this passage briefly. We introduced the passage and began to move through it. In this passage, we find that God is asking his people to do a very difficult thing. I think it's very important for us 
to not become so divided in our understanding of Scripture that we think that the Old Testament world was a different world from the New Testament world, or that the people who lived long ago were different from people that live today, nor that God is different, because the Scripture clearly teaches us that uh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the God of love that we know was the God of love who existed then. And the judgment of God we see then is the judgment that God still holds in reserve today for those who do not walk with Him. This passage we find God asks His people to do something which we can hardly fathom today, and that is to wipe out entire nations, man, woman, child, the whole inhabitants of the land were to be obliterated. Now we have to, of course, understand that maybe in some ways that was a more violent era. At least that's what historians try to say is the excuse. But of course, as we look around us, we don't find our era to be terribly less violent, particularly on the home front often. But even thinking about that possibility, this was a difficult task for these people to perform. We again must remember they were only 40 years before slaves in Egypt. And they had not known weapons, they had known only work, uh, slave labor, and it was only in the 40 years that they finally learned a little bit about warfare because they had to engage various peoples along the way that God delivered into their hands. So we might say, why does God give a command which seems so merciless? Wipe them out. Why does God do that? Well, we talked about this briefly, and let me just summarize it uh, so we can move on today in the passage. First, God knew that if the Canaanites survived and lived in the land and Israel dwelt, cohabited with them, that it would not be that Israel would convert all the Canaanites and thus they would all follow the Lord God. No, it would be rather that many, many of the Canaanites would pervert Israel, that the Israelites would be caused to lust after the gods that the Canaanites worshipped because they were sensual gods. They were very appealing gods in many ways. They, they appealed to natural human nature. And so Israel would be drawn off, and rather than converting the Canaanites, Israel would be converted to the pagan ways. And then God would be forced to judge Israel. So for that reason predominantly, God wanted them destroyed, so they would not be a cancer in the land. But secondly, there is also the promise that God had made to Abraham. It, we won't go back and turn to the 15th chapter of, of Genesis again. But there uh, God had said to Abraham that your people, your descendants will be carried off into Egypt and they will be there for 400 years and then they will come out and they will return to this land because at that hour the iniquity of the Amorite will be full. In other words, God was demonstrating mercy. He demonstrated mercy to these people for 400 additional years. He gave them 400 more years to turn from their wicked ways and to seek the Lord God, but they did not. And of course, God knew this. And so God made the promise to Abraham, which he knew he would fulfill under the time, in the time of uh, Moses and of Joshua. And so these people would be destroyed because they had refused to turn from their wicked way. We read in the 10th verse of this passage that God repays those who hate him to their faces. To destroy them, he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. God does not sneak around. God is right here to us and, and to all people. And those who hate him, he will deal with them face to face. Now and, of course, in eternity. And this, of course, was a very, very difficult thing. And 
Before class, a question was asked, which I think is, is quite significant here, and that was, why should it be that previous generations would, would live and die without facing this judgment, but this generation would be the one to face the judgment? And my response would be, first of all, of course, that the great judgment is the judgment that all men and women face before God. And the judgment in this life is minor compared to that. It's but momentary. And the destruction of these peoples would take place over a matter of a few months or a few years. They would be gone. But all men and women, particularly those, of course, who, who do not receive the truth of God, will stand in judgment before God. And that's the great judgment that all men and women face. Those generations that had already died and wouldn't see Israel come, they will face and would did face or will face uh, that same judgment. And so that is the greater judgment here. Uh, I think that we need to be concerned with. Now the question is, who are these people? Who are these people that Israel has been commanded to drive out of the land of Canaan? Well, seven specific names are given, and, and I read them there this morning, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, and so forth. They are generally often referred to simply as the Canaanites. And in this passage, certain ones are specified separately. The reasons that they are often referred to generically as Canaanites, I think, can be rooted in the 10th chapter of Genesis. Let me go back there and read a few verses from the 10th chapter of Genesis, because this really answers a lot of questions as to, to whom these people were. Genesis chapter 10, beginning at verse 15. Then Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zem <laughs> Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. And the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. Now, of course, if you haven't ever studied this, those might sound like a lot of strange words, but what that passage is telling us is two things. It's telling us, first of all, that the descendants of a man by the name of Canaan, that's the origin of the word. There was this man born, he was the son of Ham, whose name was Canaan. And he is the father of all these peoples. Through him have descended these nations that we've read off, at least many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. Uh, just as Abraham would be the father of many nations, so Canaan was the father of many nations. And this passage tells us where the descendants of, the Canaan, of Canaan would live. It tells us there that the territory of the Canaanite would extend from Sidon all the way down to Gaza and then over to Sob and Gomorrah. Well, Sidon to Gaza, that's basically what we know as Israel. And over to Sodom and Gomorrah, that takes over to the other side of the Dead Sea. So, I mean, we're talking about Canaan, Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to call it. That is the place we're talking about. And so it was known by this name for long before Israel came on the scene. Secondly, we discover here that although these people are named separately, you know, the Girgashite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and so forth, we're told in this passage in Genesis that most of them are actually blood descendants of Canaan. Therefore, they are Canaanites. Whether they're going by a specific tribal name or not, they are ultimately, were ultimately Canaanites. 
What is interesting about this too, just to make a little bit of a side uh, trip here, but it, it kind of helps us to understand how important these people really were. The name Sidon is mentioned. Sidon and Tyre were the two principal cities of a branch of the Canaanites who lived in what is today Lebanon. And these people were known to the Greeks as the Phoenicians. And the word Phoenician comes from the Greek Phoenix. And it refers to the fact that these, the, the primary item of trade was this purple dyed cloth that they obtained the purple dye from mollusks that live in the Mediterranean Sea. And the symbol of their trade was this particular purple dyed cloth. And so the Greeks referred to them as the Phoenix people, the Phoenicians. Now, what is interesting about the Phoenician people is that by the time of the intertestamental period, they have become a great power in the Mediterranean world. They, around the year 800, built a city over in North Africa, which was known as Carthage. Carthage is, is just a ruin today. It's located on the outskirts of Tunis in modern Tunisia. But it was a great seaport in, in the days of the early existence of Rome, for example, around 400 BC. And the reason Phoenicia is so little known to most of us today is the fact that they ran head to head with the newly rising Roman Empire. The Carthaginian Empire, the Roman Empire, ran head to head in three great wars, and Rome won. And Carthage was destroyed, and, and hence the, this, this civilization sort of disappeared from modern Western thinking, except, of course, the references to it in Scripture. Most of us have heard of Hannibal. Hannibal, the famous man who led an army with elephants over the Alps. Well, Hannibal was a Carthaginian. Hannibal, therefore, was ultimately a Canaanite. And of course, his name, Hannibal, meant the grace of Baal, Baal, Baal of the scripture. So, you know, this, this thing is not isolated to the Bible. You know? it's, it fits within the milieu, the framework of history of this particular time period. Now, also mentioned in this group are the Amorites. And the Amorites are mentioned in Genesis 10 as descendants directly of Canaan. But by this time, the Amorites have basically become a distinct people. They have separated from the other Canaanite peoples, and, and they became actually better known to the great, Mediterranean, uh, the great Mesopotamian world than did the Canaanites themselves. In fact, the name Amorite seems to have its root in the name given by the Akkadians, who lived in the 24th century before Christ in the Mesopotamian world, uh, who referred to them as the Amaru, the Westerners, the people from the West. These Amorites were the people from the West. And there are some who argue that Abraham himself may have originally had at least some connection with the Amorite peoples, although he, of course, was not a descendant of Canaan but that he had been lumped together, his people would have been lumped together with this generic term Amorite, uh, referring to all of the peoples from the West. By the time of Moses, though, the specific tribe of the Amorites had settled in the area of Transjordan, of what is today the modern country of Jordan. And that, of course, we've already read about the conquest that Israel made of that region and the defeat of the two great Amorite kings. Also mentioned in this passage are the Hittites. Now the Hittites posed a great deal of difficulty for historians and, and Bible scholars for a very long time. It wasn't really until about the middle of the 19th century that scholars began to unearth evidence of the Hittite people that was non-biblical. 
The Bible had referred to the Hittites, of course, all along. It had referred to the Hurrians all along. But there was no secular or, shall I say, non-biblical evidence of the existence of either of those two peoples. And so those who wanted to rag on the Bible would say, ah, certainly another proof that the Bible can't be true. It talks about people who never even existed. You know, hypothetical people, Hittites and Hurrians. And then lo and behold, I don't know how it happened, but lo and behold, they, they began to look close, closely in Egyptian literature particularly, and this name Hatti kept showing up, Hatti. And of course, what this ultimately proved to be was the kingdom of Hattusis, which was the kingdom of the Hittites. And the Hittites had established a huge empire, a very powerful empire, that was located in what is today modern Turkey and spread south from there. And the Egyptians and the Hittites were major enemies at this very moment that we're talking about. And so who were these Hittite people? Probably colonists or, or client peoples of that empire who were dwelling in the area. You know, if you have a great empire up here and a great empire down here, quite often there's a bleeding off on the edges of these people, and, and they kind of move into the space in between, sort of the no man's land, you might say. And certainly that's what we have here. Of course, they've been here for a long time because you may remember that uh, Abraham had fellowship uh, with some children, sons of Heth, who were Hittites. The Girgashites are mentioned here, but Biblical scholars don't know anything about them other than their name. There's no particular evidence of them as to exactly where they lived. Certainly they lived in Canaan and were a direct derivative of, of the Canaanites. The Perizzites, like the Girgashites, were also Canaanites, but they are known to have lived on the western slopes of the Jordan Valley. And so, it, I, don't, I don't know, if, if you've never been there, it's hard for you to picture this, I suppose, but as you come up from the coast of the Mediterranean, you begin to move into the foothills, and then you move into the highlands of Ephraim and Judea. As you go further west, it drops rather precipitously into the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley is a graben, a downfaulted block. Uh, it's part of a, of a great rift zone that goes all the way through Africa, the longest rift zone in the first, on the face of the earth. It makes the San Andreas Fault look like a teeny little crack in comparison to this uh, great fault zone. And the Jordan Valley is part of that. And so the escarpments are rather steep and the drop is rather dramatic. And they lived along the western slope of that escarpment. The Jebusites were yet another Canaanite tribe, but they have a special honor here in that they particularly occupied a city named Jebus, which would eventually be conquered by David and would be known as Jerusalem. So that was a very important uh, aspect of this tribe. The Hivites are mentioned too. And it seems that the Hivites were related to the Hurrians, this people I mentioned that even into the 20th century, it was not till the 1920s that they found any reference to the Hurrians outside of Scripture. Funny thing about that. And so there were another people, oh, they didn't exist. The Bible's obviously wrong in the error here. You know, it's, it's like the, the Bible scholar will tell you, if you find something in Scripture that you can't support from the natural world out there, just wait. Just wait. Don't be in a big hurry because time after time those who've attacked the scripture on a particular issue have been, you know, they've got end up with egg in their face because lo and behold, these people show up somewhere along the line. The Hurrians controlled a kingdom by the name of Matani, which was located in, in western portion of, of Mesopotamia. It was sort of sandwiched between the Hittites and the Egyptians. And way over now on the west coast, Surrounded by these three great empires is this little area called Canaan. 
which somehow God has preserved from these great empires for his people. The Hivites are particularly noteworthy because they will be the very first people to cause Israel or to trick Israel into violating what God had commanded them not to do. Verse 2, The Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them. Make no covenant with them. And yet it will be the Hivites who will come along and will pretend like they've come from a distant land, and they will come to Joshua and they say, we've come from a distant land, we've heard how great you are, we want to make a treaty with you. And he'll say, well, distant land? Showed them the old clothes, old food, rotten wine, you know, which they had all, of course, uh, they'd gone around finding rotten food and rotten wine so they could take it with them because they were the next town that they were supposed to capture. And so Joshua makes a treaty with them, and lo and behold, the Gibeonites, the Hivites, are the next, very next people who were supposed to be conquered. Well, when we get to Joshua, that's a, that's a story in itself, looking at that and understanding that Joshua was a great man of God, but he could make a mistake. And what you keep finding throughout Scripture is everybody has a feet of clay. <laughs> Not that that's an excuse, but it helps us to feel like, oh man, you know, how can I compare to Moses and Elijah and Paul? I'm just a little old me, you know, I'm always making errors. So did they. But God in his mercy used them and he loved them. What is really important about these nations is not really their names or their, their physical locations or, or, or all of these matters. What's really important about them is that they are all worshipers of pagan deities. And these deities which they worship have a common ancestry. This is one of the things I, I really try to emphasize in studying this is that Satan is very intelligent and, and very powerful, but he tends to stick with certain successful patterns. And he doesn't have a whole lot of variety sometimes. And he found that amongst the ancient Sumerians and the Babylonians that certain gods really worked well. And so he just kind of hung on to those and had those gods spread around a bit. And really, the gods of the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians were ancestral to the very gods we're talking about here, Baal and Ashtart. We've noted already that these were fertility deities that involved in their worship was ritual uh, prostitution, involved in their worship was ecstatic trances, involved in their worship was the sacrifice of animals and more horribly the sacrifice of human beings. In fact, even the Romans, who weren't exactly paragons of virtue, were just turned by the fact that when Carthage was facing its last hours and it looked like Rome was about to over overcome it, that the wealthy of the city took their children and sacrificed them to Baal so that Baal might rescue them out of this, this extreme hour. And of course, it didn't happen. In God's eyes, these people were totally vile. They were reprobate. They were irredeemable, and if anybody knows who's redeemable or not, it's God. And so God repeated the command. He'd given this command before, but he repeated it there in verse 5. But you shall do to them, thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. They were not to do as the church did as, when, as they came over with the Spanish conquistadores, and that is just kind of knock down an area and build a church right on top of a pagan temple site. They were, they were not to do that. Instead, they were to wipe it out, obliterate it, eliminate anything that had any reference to do with these pagan deities. Why? 
What was, what was so, what's such, such a big deal about that? I mean, after all, we live in a, a pluralistic society, it's supposed to live and let live, so why can't Israel be that way? Isn't that way God is, live and let live? You know, whatever you think, it's okay. All roads lead to heaven. You'll get there someday. Just be faithful to your, to your cause. Be faithful to your heart. I don't know if you've ever heard John MacArthur preach, but one of his sermons, he talks from, from Jeremiah, wherein he keeps emphasizing the passage which says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Trust your heart. You have to be a nincompoop to trust your heart. <laughs> because your heart will lead you wrong every time. Because our hearts are flesh. Our hearts are, are shot through with the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's only as our heart is regenerated, born again, and that we walk in the light of the Spirit of God who teaches us through the Word of God that we can now trust. But we don't trust our heart. We trust the Scripture. We trust the Spirit of God. These people were not to allow the religion of the pagan peoples to taint them, to pollute them. Because, why? Because they were a holy people. God said, you are a holy people whom I have chosen for my own possession. I have chosen you. You are my people. You have no right to pervert and pollute yourself with these vile gods they were sovereignly chosen by God, and he makes that so clear in this passage. He says, I chose Abraham, and I chose Isaac, and I chose Jacob, and I chose you as their descendants to give witness to the world. To give witness to the world of what? Of God's truth, of God's mercy, of God's love and justice. And of course, it's being demonstrated here. His justice is being demonstrated. And as we get to the city of Jericho, and the walls fell, fall down, a portion of the wall will not fall, because on there is the house of a woman who was a Canaanite prostitute, but she believed, and that's the mercy of God. To those who would believe, there is mercy. To those who will not believe, God repays them to his face, he says. And that's exactly what's happening here. Just in case, though, they, they thought that possibly God chose them because they were worthy. We're good people. And we're powerful people, and so God chose us. He says, you were nobody. <laughs> you were the weakest and the smallest of all peoples. In fact, you were one man, Abraham. <laughs> you can't get less than that. It was because I chose you. And, and God tells us he chooses the weak things to humble the mighty. And so he would do here with these, the fewest and the least worthy people. What is the application of all of this to us? Is there any? Or do we just read this as historical information as the Old Testament and let's quickly get to the New Testament so we can breathe easier? No. As I have, I think, highlighted before, every truth in the, Old, in the New Testament can be found first in the Old Testament. Let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, reading at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim. Why? What is the purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, meaning to the world, to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. I mean, this passage, if there is a transitional passage in Scripture, this is it. Because this passage applies to Israel as they face Canaan, it applies to the church today equally. Because Peter, of course, is talking within the context of the Hebrew nation, but he is applying it to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And why has he called us? That we might demonstrate the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he was saying to Israel, and that's what he's saying to the church. That's why we're here, to declare God to the world, to live God before the world. And that was Israel's purpose. He was putting them right there at the crossroads of the world, you might say where the trade from Egypt met the trade from, from the Hittites and the trade from Mesopotamia came across a, a, cruci a crucial point in the whole Fertile Crescent area. Put them there that, that they might demonstrate who God was, His love and His justi justice, His mercy and His grace to those people that surrounded them. And Peter's urging here in verses 11 and 12 that they abstain from fleshly lust. That's exactly what God is saying to Israel here. Abstain from fleshly lust. Don't go after these gods because they will take you down. They will draw you into the flesh. They will cause you to turn your back against me. And he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And of course, that's for the Jews, for us who are the Gentiles. It means keep our, excellent, our, our behavior excellent before the world in which we live all those who are looking upon us to see if Christianity is really anything other than what it has been denigrated as to be. Are we more than a bunch of bigots who just want to harp on certain points and, and who are hypocritical? Or do we live the truth? Do we live the truth? And that was what Israel was to do. If we turn back to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, Paul says this to the church, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again, this is a transitional passage. It helps us to understand how God viewed Israel as well as how God views the church. I mean, he says, you were nothing. You were the weakest, the smallest of the tribes, and yet I chose you. And, and here God is saying to them and, and to us that he has chosen the foolish things. I don't know if you like to wear that very well. Of the world to shame the wise. But you know, when you stop to think about it, in this sophisticated world in which we live, to, to, for us to place our faith that somehow we're going to go to heaven someday because some man 2,000 years ago who claimed to be the Messiah died on a cross and, and that we count on his blood as cleansing us spiritually. And, you know, the things which we believe to the world are ludicrous. Of course, we look at what they believe and that's equally ludicrous. I mean, it's obviously ludicrous. But to the world, 
we're foolish. And sometimes we may feel a little foolish, too. But that's what God has chosen. And with this, God is shaming the wise, and, and he's, he's weakening the powerful, and the mighty will stand before him one day, and they'll hang their heads knowing that they missed it completely, and that they did not believe, and that they rejected the truth. Because they never looked to see, does this truth really make a difference in people's lives? And the testimony is everywhere of transformed lives, and, I, and, and every one of us in this room should be an example of that. How God has changed us, and, and, and when, 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 when we're put through the pressure, do we come out like a diamond, or do we crumble like coal into dust? And as we shine like a diamond, the world can see in the midst of tragedy and all the things that strike everyone in the world, there is faith, there is hope. Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that is not because God is ego an egoist, you know, and they just can't stand anybody else getting any credit. That isn't it at all. God is simply explaining what really exists. He is everything. He is all in all, omniscient, all-powerful, and we are not. We're but a lump of dust. I mean, even biologists will tell us that we're over 90% water, just kind of a walking swamp is what we are. <laughs> and who are we to stand before God and say, look what I have done? You know, Nebuchadnezzar did that, stood in the roof of his palace and said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built? <laughs> and God said, no. You're not great anything. In fact, I'll prove it to you. You can eat grass for seven years and run around stark naked and be a fool. We too are holy people. God is calling us, called us. And we are not to compromise with the Canaanites of our life just as they were not to compromise with the Canaanites that they were about to conquer. Our Canaanites, of course, are different in the sense that we're not talking about physical human beings primarily. We're talking about the world, the flesh, the devil, the lust, the things that come at us, the things which tempt us to violate God's plan for our lives. These are the Canaanites that must be slain in our lives. And as was true of Israel throughout their history, they had victory when they trusted and obeyed. They had victory consistently when they trusted and obeyed. And when they did not trust and obey, they had tragedy. And you look at the book of Judges, and you see it over and over again. I mean, it's like a roller coaster. You know, trust and obey, don't trust and obey, trust and obey, you know. And you almost feel like it's deja vu, deja vu. <laughs> and it just gets to be an old story. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, Hold fast to that which is, a good, which is good and abstain from every form or appearance of evil. Abstain not only from, the, from evil, but from the form or appearance of it. Now, of course, that might be defined a little differently in each person's life, but it means we don't walk as close as we can to the world and still call ourselves a Christian. It means we veer to the other side. Not that we look at the world as if it's some kind of a pariah that we never come near, but that we personally live our lives so that the world is not permeating us and our thinking and our actions and our attitudes. We have the power to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It begins in the mind. And the mind has to be made captive to Christ. And that's why understanding the Word of God is so absolutely essential for the effective Christian life. The Christian who does not know the Word does not have a mind captive to Christ. Our minds are shot full of the world because that's what we're bathing in all the time, willingly or not. And we're told there that we are not warring in the world now. Israel had to war in the flesh, but as we're going to see, that warring in the flesh wouldn't have been successful for Israel either. God gave them the victory. God is the one who prepared the way, and God's the one who slayed the Canaanites, really, in the long run. But for us, we don't war according to the flesh. Our, our weapons are spiritual weapons. They are prayer above everything else. Prayer is the primary weapon that God gives to his church to change the world. And, of course, the use of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word, these are all weapons that are used. And, of course, the strength to resist the devil and to flee from him. These are weapons God, God gives us. And he gives us the Word in season to speak, which will mute the voice of those who try to deny the power of God. God made wonderful promises to Israel. He said these wonderful things will happen on one contingency that you obey me. That seems pretty logical. Not so easy to do. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. Verse 14. He shall, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will remove from you all sickness and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. What a promise that God has made here to Israel. These promises are basically, and they shall live happily ever after, of the fairy tales. Only this is not a fairy tale. This is reality. Their families would be blessed with abundant children. There would be no barrenness. And barrenness was a great curse in those days. For a woman to have no child made her a pariah in her own community often. She was not even thought to be a real woman if she couldn't bear a child. And God said, that won't happen. The nation will grow. Their crops and their herds would prosper. There won't be plagues of grasshoppers. There won't be blight. They would not know judgment by disease. Those diseases that God sent in judgment upon Egypt would not fall on Israel. They would defeat all their enemies. Defeat all their enemies. This would be utopia 
which, I mean, how many have been looking for utopia? I mean, that was Karl Marx's focus, utopia. Utopia, of course, is, is a Greek word which means nowhere. <laughs> and Sir Thomas More wrote a book about that. He invented this place in the 16th century. He said there's this island and, and this is what it's like in this island. And they contrasted that with real life. And of course, he created what he thought was a utopian society. Well, this is the real utopian society. They would have experienced this had they walked consistently, faithfully before God. Now, they only experienced it sporadically because they were only obedient sporadically. And that's the tragedy, of course, of the story of the nation of Israel. But we dare not, as I have emphasized before, we dare not say, well, silly people, if they had only wised up. All we have to do is look in the mirror and we see the same thing. Well, at least that's all I need to do. I guess I shouldn't speak for all of you, but I, but I think human nature is pretty <laughs> common to all of you. And we aren't always as consistent as we'd like to be. But God is merciful, and God is merciful upon His people. And as you study through the book, uh, through the Old Testament, you discover that in spite of the fact, do you know that when Israel divided because of the sin of Solomon, and we'll be talking about that next week, the sin of Solomon, God divided Israel into two halves, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, those who followed Rehoboam and those who followed Jeroboam. And as you trace the history of those two halves, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, you discover the tragedy of the fact that the nation of Israel never once in its history, the northern kingdom never once in its history, had a king who did right in the eyes of God. Not one. Nineteen kings. And it says they all did that which was evil in the eyes of God. And yet God tolerated the existence of that nation for hundreds of years. So God's mercy is there, but God's judgment is real. And the Canaanites were about to experience that. But unfortunately, Israel will not obey the word holy because some of the Canaanites will be allowed to remain. And they will do exactly as God said they would do. And they will begin to pervert Israel. They will be little pockets of corruption, little pockets of cancer that will begin to spread through Israel. And how easy it is for God's people to be overwhelmed by the world, the flesh, and the devil, unless they're on guard, in the word, and on their knees. Without that, we do not stand. God keeps his remnant, and there will be those he will cause to be obedient. And it should be our goal, our hope, our focus, that we be amongst those day by day. Because otherwise, we live in a very frustrating world. When you read the newspaper that the highest levels of our society and of our government are so vile, you know, it doesn't give much hope except in God and the fact that He can, can transform lives and that He will. Next week I want to pick up with the 17th verse and go to the end of the chapter dealing with the fact that God does not leave us to our own devices to be obedient, but God enables us to be obedient. He gives us the power to do that. And what is this hornet that that passage talks about? God says, I will send the hornet in. What is this hornet that God sends in?